You can turn your Bibles to James 3. I'm going to read verse 2. I would like to really read 2 through 10, but for time's sake, I'm only going to read verse 2, and I will, <clears throat> excuse me, I will uh, reference back to some other verses through this, through, the, through my time. <clears throat> James 3, verse 2 says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, enable also to bridle the whole body. My subject, the subject that I want to talk about today is our tongue and how we use it. Now, there's no way in the world I can cover that subject in 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days for that matter. <clears throat> Jonathan's preached many sermons about it. There's Proverbs galore out there that deals with the subject, proverb commentaries. What I'd like to do is just review a few things and give us something to think about as we go through our week <clears throat> and how we can use our how we use our tongue. We can use it for good, we can use it for evil. Um, so I just want to give us a few a few reminders. First we first thing I want to do is very quickly look at how we use this instrument, just some some rules of engagement so to speak. I'm just going to go through three, there's more, but three important ones. First of all, we should use it cautiously. Proverbs 15:28 tells us that the heart of the righteous studieth to answer, Amen. but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. It's very simple. Think before you speak. Right. Rule one. Rule two, we use it sparingly. Something some of us have a little trouble with sometimes. Proverbs 17:27, He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. We should be swift to hear and slow to speak. Amen. Think before you talk. Once again, use your words sparingly. And thirdly, they, we should use our words profitably. Proverbs 15.7 says, The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish, but the heart of the foolish doth not so. We should use our words profitably. When we speak, we should have a purpose. We should be having something to say that is profitable, that is wise, that is most likely from God's Word. Um, as my mom used to always say, basically, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say nothing at all. I'm sure we've all heard that. So that's three basic rules which we've got to think of first. We use our tongue cautiously, we use it sparingly, and we should use it profitably. Now James 3.10 tells us that out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be. So what I want to do is take a few minutes and look at just three. There's many, many more, but just three items that the Lord put on my heart to think about how we can use our tongue either as a blessing or as a cursing. <clears throat> and I feel almost hypocritical standing up for doing this, especially to any of y'all have had a recent conversation with me. Um, I did a lot of reflecting and a lot of repenting when I was preparing for this. It's Anyway, so forgive me. Number one, your words can either be, you can either use them for encouragement or for discouragement. Right. Your words are either helpful or they're hurtful. They're either exhorting and edifying or they're discouraging. They either motivate people to godly zeal or they leave you feeling like they've been run over by a freight train. You're either encouraging or discouraging. Proverbs 12:18 tells us that there is that speaketh like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. 
Amen. We have a very good example of this in the Bible of Job. We all know the story of Job. I'm not going to go back to it, but in, you know, Job was as discouraged and downtrodden as a human being has ever been in the history of the world. And he had three so-called wise friends. You know, well, friends like that who needs enemies, right? But so-called wise friends who came to help him, who came to talk to him. And we know the end, that they just made matters worse. Job finally comes to the point where he says, you know, miserable comforters are ye all. And Job responds back to them saying, if, you know, if my soul was in your soul's stead, you know, I would strengthen you with my mouth. I would assuage your soul with my, with my words. Job was going to use his words to strengthen and help them. They used his words. They heaped words upon them. They condemned them unrightfully, unjustly, and they made matters worse. My question for us is when, 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 when we have people, especially when we have people that are discouraged in our life, do our words bring hurt and pain, or do they bring health and healing? Do they bring comfort and help? Right. Or do you just not say anything at all and forget about it, which is, which is a problem in itself at times? Secondly, are, your words, are our words full of complaining, griping, and murmuring, or are our words full of praise and thanksgiving? Right. When we talk... Do we complain and murmur like the Israelites did in the desert after they had gotten out of Egypt? You know, th- this is with their attitude. Well, you know, God, you brought us out of Egypt. You just brought us out here in the sand just to die. We'd have been better off if we just stayed where we were. Or they said, you know, that manna, it was okay at first, but I'm tired of that. I remember back when I was in Egypt, you know, I had fish and all kinds of other good things to eat. They were complaining and murmuring. Them giants, they're so big. What are we going to do? We ain't got a chance. Did you see them things? Everything about them was complaining and murmuring. What they should have been saying, what should have been coming out of their mouth, they should have been thankful and praising the God of heaven who Amen. took them out of that bondage right. and out of Egypt. And, ex- and exhorting one another and encouraging one another, saying, man, did you see what he did? I can't wait to see what he does next. Amen. That's what they should have been saying. They should have been thanking him every morning when they got up and walked out of their tents and had breakfast, laying, breakfast, lunch, and supper laying on the floor. They didn't have to go to the grocery store. They didn't have to plant. They didn't have to sow. They didn't, all they had to do was reap and take it in there and fix it and eat it. They should have been thankful that their needs were met. They should have been having words of thanksgiving. Instead, they were murmuring and complaining and wanting more. You know, they should have looked at those giants and said, fear not. You know, the Lord is with us. Amen. Them giants ain't got a chance. Right. And that's basically what Joseph, uh, Joshua and Caleb did say. But the rest of them didn't, and we know their end. So my question for us is, you know, how does that apply to us in our daily lives? Well, how do we talk about our jobs, our finances, our spouses, our parents, our nation, etc.? You know, when you wake up in the morning for your, to get ready to go to work, you know, you, do you wake up your husband or wife here, you know, complaining, I've got to get up every morning at 5 o'clock. It takes me an hour to wash my hair. I don't know why i got to put on all this makeup. You know, I'd, looking pretty ain't going to help me do my job no better. And I'm fixing to have to get on 385 and they're doing that construction. And I know that same group of guys over there are going to be smoking a cigarette. That's my tax money they're wasting. He should be shoveling something. You know, and then you, and you get to work and you're, I know my boss, he doesn't like me. He puts me, he's going to give me the hardest job. He puts me in that back corner room. I don't have a window. It's hot back there. Blah, blah, blah. We've all heard it. Some of us have done it. What your attitude should be, and people hear it. People at work hear that. Right. I've heard it. Are you complaining all the time? When your attitude should be, you should get up every morning thankful that you have a job. Right. Thankful that it's when, you, that when you get on 385, 
that's hopefully maybe it'll be a little construction, you'll have 15 minutes to wait, and you can be thanking the Lord and praising Him with a song, listening to Scorby, listening to a sermon, something. Right. You should get to work and be thankful that that boss, you should go in there and say, I'm going to go tell my boss how thankful I am that he hired such a knucklehead like me. And that he puts up with those two or three mistakes I make every day. He hasn't fired me. I'm going to go in there and see if there's something else, you know, instead of complaining about having an extra job, a hard job to do, you should be going in there with the attitude of what can I do? Right. Being thankful. And we can apply that to every area of our lives, whether it's how we speak about our nation, our parents, our spouses, whatever. <laughs> so basically, you got a question we got to ask is when we talk about these things, are we like the children of Israel, of Israel who died in the desert, or are we like, the, are we like Paul who learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was and was thankful for all things? What comes out of your mouth in that area? What comes out of my mouth? And thirdly... Finally, my last one is, you know, do you use your tongue for foolish talking, jesting, filthy talking, things which are not convenient? Right. Or do you use it to exhort and edify your brethren? And do you use it to, to uh, speak of God's wondrous works that He has done in your life and in, this, in, in the creation in the world that we see around us? You know, the fact of the matter is we all go to work or to school or somewhere every day where we are constantly surrounded and bombarded with foolish talking with jesting, with pointless conversations about absolutely nothing. And, and in some instances, there's nothing we can do about it. We're surrounded by it. But my two questions I have in that for us is, number one, when the opportunity presents itself, do you walk away from that? And at the very least, do you turn a deaf ear to it? Or do you join in with it when you're at work, at school, or wherever? Do you walk away from it when you can and definitely not participate with it with your mouth? And secondly, and more to the point of us today, is when we're together as a church, whether it's on Sundays, whether we have people over, whether we go out to eat, what is your conversation about? What is my right. conversation about? What are we talking about? Are we fooling around, joking, jesting, Lord forbid, having filthy conversations? Or pointless, or, or, or pointless conversations about nothing? Are we taking that limited time that we have and using our voice to exhort one another? Hebrews 3 tells us to exhort one another daily. Right. Hebrews 10 tells us to provoke one another unto love and good works. And we all know Malachi 3.16 talks about the conversations that we have with each other about the Lord in that book of remembrance that's being written. You know, that's my question to you today, to us. Are you in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10, Malachi 3, or are you in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5.4, where it talks about foolish, filthy talking and jesting, which are not convenient. Which one do we come in? You know, we could go on and on about this whole thing. There's so much more could be said, has been said, and I'm sure will be said about this subject, about our tongues. It's a powerful weapon we have. It's more powerful than any. It causes more damage than any bomb that was ever dropped in Japan if it's not used wisely. That's right. And it can also be used for good if it's used cautiously, sparingly, and profitably. Um, James 3, 7, and 8 tells us that it, it's something else, too. This is something we have to be conscious of this. It's a constant battle that we fight. It's never ending. Right. James 3, 7, and 8 tells us that no, you know, we've tamed the beast, we've tamed the serpents, we've tamed the flying things, we've tamed, tamed the things under the ocean, but the tongue is no man tamed. Right. Only one man ever tamed his tongue. Tamed his tongue. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. 
And what was said of him about the way he spoke? Never has a man spoke like this man spoke. That's, right. That's what was said of him. In closing, I just want us to turn to Matthew 12, verse 34. You know, you're known by what comes out of your mouth. I know your heart by what you're talking about, and you know mine. What you talk about on a consistent basis says a lot about you. It says everything about you. <clears throat> verse Matthew 12, verse 34 through 37. Oh, generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of evil treasure, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account. Therefore, in the, I'm sorry, they shall give account. Therefore, in the day of judgment, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words. Thou shalt be condemned. Just the last thought. Well, that's, that's, a scary, that's a scary thought sometimes to make, knowing what comes out of my mouth sometimes. And I just want to leave it. That's my point for today is for us to think about what we say. We are going to stand before the high king of heaven. Right. One day, every single one of us in this room, every single person in this world, and give an account for everything that has come out of this mouth. And all I can say to that is, Lord, have mercy on us all. Excellent. Thank you very much, Brother Jerry. Let's turn our burgundy hymnals to hymn number 327. Hymn number 327, if we can do this, it'll help us as we deal with our tongues. If we can take the thoughts of hymn 327, and as we sing it, think about how this applies to what our brother has just said about taming our tongues.
Amen. Brother Jonathan? You may turn to Genesis 23, if you will. Here we have an exchange between Abraham, the father of the faithful, the friend of God, with some pagan neighbors that he was familiar with. And what we want to learn here is what, the, what it is that the Lord expects of us in our dealings with the unbelievers that we deal with on a regular basis and that we have a continuing relationship with by necessity in this world. So we have two, two parties here exchanging in Genesis 23, uh, Abraham and the sons of Heth, the Hittites. So who were the Hittites? They were, uh, Heth was a son of Canaan, who was a son of Ham. Ham was the cursed one of the three sons of Noah. And uh, the Canaanites were the group of people that Israel was, in a few hundred years, to cast out of their land. Because the Lord said, if Israel didn't drive them out, the land would vomit them out. My point here is that these are ungodly pagan people. So in verses 1 and 2 here, we have Abraham standing up from before the body of his wife Sarah as she has died in verses 1 and 2 here. Uh, So Abraham at this time is a sojourner and doesn't own any land in the world. So he needs a place to bury his wife. So he stands up from before the body of Sarah and he asks humbly uh, of the sons of Heth that are there with him for a place where he can bury his dead wife. And the Hittites answer him, Thou art a mighty prince among us, and the choice of our sepulchres bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre. This indicates that they have uh, some regard for Abraham. He's a mighty prince among them. It also indicates that Abraham had some uh, lengthy relationship with them over time. You know, I want you to think as we're going through this of the unbelievers outside of this church that you deal with on a regular basis with your job or with, with your school or uh, in your neighborhood and what sort of relationship do you have with them and how is it uh, that they treat you? You know, we've learned before that a test of graciousness is not what you think of yourself, it's what others think of you. Right. Now, um, let's continue here. So Abraham, in verse 7, bows down himself to the sons of Heth at their response, calling him a mighty prince among them. And in verse 8, he communed with them and, uh, and says, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight. Notice that phrase. He was the one that initiated the request to them. And they have agreed with him, and then he he has come back to say, if this is your mind, if this is your will that I'm allowed to bury my wife among you, then I'll proceed in, in my request here. And he's falling down before them, and he's being quite gracious in his request. Right. And if you think about it, it's a pretty small request. All he's asking for is to buy a piece of property. But yet, notice his approach. Um, in verse 
8 again here, Abraham doesn't even address Ephron the Hittite directly, whose field it is that he wants to buy. He asks the sons of Heth, entreat for me to Ephron the Hittite. Continuing in verse 9, he doesn't finish the sentence of asking for Ephron's cave before he makes it clear that he will pay for it, a fair market value. Ephron responds in verses 10 and 11, Nay, my lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee. And the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee. Bury thy dead. Now, now Ephron is one of the sons of Heth. He's a pagan. The state of his soul is dead. He has no spiritual life. And his motives are only hateful and hating one another, as all children of the world are. So uh, my point here is Abraham must have been quite kind in his dealings with the sons of Heth and Ephron over a long time in order to get this sort of response from a child of the world. Verse 12, Abraham bows down again to the sons of Heth. He refuses Ephron's offer of a free sepulcher. In verse 13, He says, Hear me, I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me. Ephron responds in in verses 14 and 15, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? 400 shekels of silver is a decent amount of money. Uh, If a man lay with a virgin, he had to pay the father 100 shekels of silver. Some years later, a horse was worth 150 shekels of silver from Egypt, and a chariot was worth 600. So it's a decent amount of money. But you can tell here from this point that Ephron and Abraham had had many financial dealings in the past. It's ordinary for us to have some tension in a customer, supplier, or buyer-seller kind of relationship like this because in negotiation the point is to get the buyer to pay more than they wanted to originally or to get the seller to let go of their item for less than they wanted originally but it's evident here that Abraham and Ephron had a much better relationship than that So in verse 16, Abraham consents to the asking price of Ephron. He doesn't negotiate. He just says, 400 shekels, I'll give it to you. So he weighs it before the, the people that were there present with the merchant and gives him exactly 400 shekels of silver. And he's perfectly fair in the transaction. And uh, after that, Abraham buries his wife Sarah in the cave that he requested. Some thoughts here that I want to bring out in addition to what we've already discussed. We, we have this opportunity on a daily basis right. in our dealings with pagans to establish a relationship or a, a reputation, I should say, with them in the way we deal with them. We have that necessity. Um, Abraham sets a pretty high standard here for what he was able to accomplish with children of the world. These are pagans. You, know, you, might, you might make the, the argument, well, these people may have been 
converted as a result of Abraham's dealings with them. That wasn't the case. Isaac, in this chapter, is 36 years old. In the next chapter, Abraham is, is making a vow with his servant to not let Isaac marry any of the daughters of these people. That's right. That's right. Exactly. A generation later, somebody does measure, marry two daughters of these people. That was Esau. And they were a grief of mind. Those two daughters of Heth were a grief of mind to right. Isaac and Rebekah. My point here is to consider uh, how it is that we interact with the unbelievers we deal with and that we would, be, we would elevate our treatment of them a notch yes. and use Abraham as an example. May the Lord bless us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Excellent points. Well, along the lines of graciousness, let's turn to hymn number 252. Because if we're living with charity, then we will be a gracious soul to anyone we deal with. <clears throat> so let's sing about that in 252. And again, think about what our brothers just talked about. And let's take the words of this hymn to further that along to how we can apply that into our lives each day. Hymn 252.
Brother Mark? Save the lost at any cost. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Throw out the lifeline. Someone's sinking today. And do it without delay. These are the battle cries that are going out from many pulpits today in many of the churches across the country. Quote, Jesus wants you to finish what he began. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Quote, Each one, male or female, of every age and in any position of life whatsoever, should make it a business to save souls. There are indeed many other things to be done. Let them have their place. But don't neglect the greatest of all. Is that true? Is that the greatest commandment? That's what many preachers would have us believe. The greatest commandment is not to go out and save souls, to witness to the lost, to fulfill the Great Commission. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. But that is not necessarily what people preach. People, many pastors preach, and I I heard many, many sermons convicting us and, and laying so much burden on the hearers that they are to go out to preach the gospel and to save the lost, to convert a sinner that's on his way to hell to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's... Is that is that the case? Is that the case? Let's look at a few verses. Many preachers preachers will be using today Matthew twenty eight eighteen and tw- eighteen through twenty. You can turn there if you like. I'll I'll just read it. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you." And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Preachers will also be using Matthew sixteen fifteen, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. They'll also be using Matthew 24, 46 through 48. And he said, that's Jesus, Thus it is written, and thus it behooves Christ, I'm sorry, thus it behooves Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. You're supposed to go out and preach these things, right? Right? Isn't that your job? No. Well, let's look at four questions and answer those four questions, and we'll find the answer. Our first question that we need to ask is, who was the Great Commission addressed to? Was it addressed to us? Was it addressed to you? No, we weren't there. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. If we go back to Matthew 28, and we pick up at verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then it goes on to say, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me. Jesus was addressing his eleven disciples that were with him. Now, many preachers are still laying the burden on us that we need to go out into the world and convert the sinners. So, in that case, were the 11 disciples a failure? Why did Jesus commission the 11 disciples to go out and preach to all nations and to convert and witness to them? But yet, they didn't do it. Did they not have special powers? Were they not? Did they not have the ability? Did Jesus command them and just expect them to fail? No. I wouldn't think so. I'd think they'd be able to do it. Well, don't you? 
So first of all, who is the Great Commission addressed to? The 11 disciples. Our second question, what was to follow those that were commanded to go into all the world? What kind of signs or wonders or, or what was supposed to happen along with the 11 preaching? Well, let's go to Mark 16. Go ahead and turn there if you would. And we'll take up in verse 17. Mark 16, 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after that, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Wow. You see many missionaries these days taking up snakes, drinking strychnine, well, maybe in, maybe in some evangelist, uh, uh, evangelical churches, but, but most, of, most people don't take up strychnine, they don't cast out devils, they don't take up serpents. These are things that were specifically stated would follow those to whom the Great Commission was given. That's right. So our first two questions, to whom was the Great Commission addressed? His disciples. What was to follow those as signs that, that this is a true work and, and uh, you know, a witness of God's dealings you know, and converting others? Signs and wonders. Let's ask our third question. Where did the preachers actually go? Where did the 11 disciples go? Preachers would have you believe that there's still many countries around the world to where the gospel's never been shared. Is that true? Well... Let's look at what the verses say. You're right there in Mark 16. Let's look at verse 20. It says, And they went forth, the eleven, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Yes, right. There it says, look, before the chapter ends, it already says that the gospel had gone everywhere. Let's, if you would, turn to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll pick up in verse 21. Colossians 1, 21. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. In Paul's own lifetime, every creature under heaven had already been preached the gospel. So it looks like the eleven disciples and other apostles that were later commissioned already fulfilled the work before the Bible was even done being written. Question number three down. What's the last question? Question number four is, what was Paul's method of evangelism? We're supposed to follow Paul as Paul followed Christ. You know, he was the, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. You know, so we should follow him, right? Well, if you look at all Paul's epistles, where do you see Paul con- commanding us to go out and preach to unbelievers? Nowhere. Nowhere. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Paul's manner was not to preach to unbelievers on, even, even Paul, being an apostle, he didn't preach to unbelievers on street corners. That wasn't his manner. 
Acts 17, 2 through 4 says, Amen. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. In other words, a synagogue where people were already seeking after God. He didn't go to the brothel. He went to the synagogue where they already knew the true God. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Paul's manner wasn't to go out to the street corners going door to door, or go to jails, or go to whatever kind of ministries that they have these days. Paul's manner was to go to synagogues where people were already seeking the Bible, you could say believers, they did believe in God, but they just weren't fully converted yet. His goal was never to convert an unbeliever, someone on their way to hell, to the, to the gospel so they could be born again. That wasn't his, his purpose. So we've looked at four questions. To whom was the Great Commission commissioned or commanded the 11 disciples? What was to follow those disciples? Signs and wonders. Question number three, where did, the, where did they actually go? They went everywhere, and they preached to every creature under heaven. And question number four, what was Paul's method of evangelism? Paul didn't go on the street corners. He went to the synagogues. He preached to already those who were seeking after God. Now, some will call us lazy. Some will call us you know, not caring about others not caring for their souls. Is that true? No, we're trying to follow the Bible. Matthew 5 says that we should let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Us as Christians, we should be living our lives in such a way that others can see our works and ask us a hope of the reason that's within us. And then we can share the gospel toward them. It's foolish to cast our pearls before swine or those who are scorners, unbelievers, not interested in anything, unregenerate, reprobates. It's a, it's a waste of the gospel to, to present it to them. And they'll just mock us and laugh us to scorn. Our goal as Christians should be to live in such a way that people will see our lives and ask us, and then we can share the gospel to them. It shouldn't be to go out, as many preachers will have us believe, to go preach the gospel in jails, preach the gospel to unbelievers, that, that's, that's not what the gospel commands us to do. Right. Hope this has been helpful. Amen. Lord be praised. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Just to recap, if we look at it, we've had three very different but very good exhortations today. Brother Jerry talking about the tongue and how we use it. And I like the example he gave. Just look at all we know about the children of Israel how they murmured, griped, and complained at every turn. That's not what we want to be like. We want to be praising the Lord, glorifying Him, building up and lifting up others with our tongues. Brother Jonathan, talking about dealing with worldlings, dealing with those that are around us who don't have the truth, who aren't interested in it, yet even to them we should be gracious in our daily dealings, And we want to establish a godly reputation. And think about how that feeds into the conclusion that Brother Mark had for us. The fact that 
the Great Commission, well, we can't fulfill the Great Commission. God didn't give it to us, and He didn't give the power to us, but it already got fulfilled in the intent that God intended back in the days of the apostles, the ones who were able to do it. But what do we do? We want to live those gracious, godly lives so that when people see us in this sea of turmoil that we live in, when they see us with joyful, happy, uplifting words that we give to others, not griping and complaining, they look, and if God's made a work of grace in their hearts, they want to come ask us, why are we like that? Why are we different? And at that point... That is our duty to share Jesus Christ with them and what he's done for us and encourage them and exhort them to walk in obedience to his word. Excellent. Excellent. Let's all turn in our burgundy hymnals as we close our first service this morning to hymn number 165. Hymn number 165. Please join me in standing as we sing this. Him 165.
Amen. Amen. Let's look to the Lord to bless our snack we're about to partake of. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the things that we've heard this morning. Help us, Lord. Help us that we might hold fast to them, Lord. That we might consider them in our lives to see how they apply to our hearts and our lives. And that we might put them into effect, Lord, even now. Even now as we fellowship one with another. Lord, we thank you for the food that we're about to partake of. And we ask, Lord, that you'd grant us strength and nourishment from it. Lord, bless our time of fellowship, that it might be pleasing in thy sight, and that in what we say and do, Jesus Christ would be lifted up and magnified. For it's in his blessed name we ask these things. Amen.